watchers in the fourth dimension. I can't take you back, Susan. I can't. The shadows before. So silent in the ship. Rash action is worse than no action at all. Hmm? Hello, and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And my name is Riley, and I think it was Susan in the TARDIS with the scissors. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. Those of us rejoining, welcome back. If this is your first time with us, we are about to examine serial number three of Doctor Who, The Edge of Destruction. We have previously done episodes on the first two serials. If you want to go back and listen to those, we would like to think we were relatively entertaining and uh, we would love for your feedback. Beyond that, we're going to look at the Edge of Destruction this week. With a title like that, you would be forgiven for thinking that this is somewhat reminiscent of the time in which it took place, the middle of the Cold War, but this story is a little more esoteric than that. Since the previous story, not a huge amount had happened. The uh, Cold War had continued to ramp up slightly in the run-up to recording of this, but overall it was mostly on the space front rather than the nuclear front. By the time this went into production and broadcast, we had the Beatles make it over to the US. We had a KGB agent defect to the USA, and over here in the USA, the 24th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, but overall, nothing significant really happened prior to the release of this. In the charts, we had Beatlemania in the US, they had hit number one with I Wanna Hold Your Hand, whereas in the UK, there was the slightly twee band The Searchers with their hit single Needles and Pins. Behind the scenes here, those of you familiar with the history of Doctor Who may already know that the original order was only for 13 episodes. The initial four was on the first serial, then we had seven with the Daleks, so this two-episode story was to fulfil that original 13-episode run, and if it hadn't been for the Daleks, Doctor Who would have likely ended here. We have the script editor David Whittaker penning his first story himself. Behind the camera, we actually once again have two different directors in the shape of Richard Martin, who directed, uh, I believe, three out of four of the episodes of The Daleks. And we have Frank Cox, who this is his Doctor Who directorial debut, but we will see more of him. Beyond that, we don't have a huge cast, this just being the main TARDIS crew. And once again, we have Tristan Carey providing sound. So with what is becoming a standard of this podcast, I believe this week, Julie is going to provide us with our brief plot summary. Over to you, Julie. Two men and two women allow a malfunctioning spaceship to turn them against each other, and it's all because of a broken switch. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we're here for? No, that was perfect. All right. So with that, let's talk about the story. Mention it just briefly, but this entire serial is a money-saving exercise, which is still done today, and they call it a bottle episode. Everyone's probably heard of that before, and a lot of television shows usually do it. When you do a bottle episode, it is crucial, but since you can't really do a change of setting or scenery, you have to have stellar writing to keep the audience engrossed because you're caught, you're bottled in one spot. They did build a good amount of suspense, I think, but we don't get our answers to anything till the very, very end. I thought the music was fantastic in helping drive the suspense. Did this feel like a bit of a, a small, almost horror slash suspense thriller to anyone else? I was going to say, to me, this felt almost something like one of the more claustrophobic Hitchcock movies crossed with something like The Outer Limits. And when you have a cliffhanger of hands, arms coming off screen strangling someone that's your cliffhanger and you don't know who's doing the strangling 
definitely fits that. First shot we see where Ian has been sitting in the chair, he's passed out, and we do some stuff with Barbara, and then suddenly he's just standing there. It was very effective, it was kind of creepy and weird, and just the whole beginning where they're calling each other by their full names and are kind of trying to figure out if they recognize each other, it did a really good job of setting an atmosphere. I agree completely. It's um, I feel like only until the episode started showing you know them tearing into each other a bit only then do i feel like the the creepiness then subsided because it seemed like you're then watching just a group of people just arguing with each other which can be effective i mean that's something that we that's a very common thing in fiction is to have the people are trapped in a situation where there's danger the danger is escalating and people turn on each other the direction here led it down a very interesting path. To me, at times, it almost felt like a theatre piece rather than something made for TV. The action seemed very staged. One thing that really caught my eye early on was the movement Susan has when she first wakes up, for want of a better term, where it's just very, very weird and unnatural movement, almost zombie-like. I thought Carolyn Ford did a really good job. Because normally, I mean, we make fun of the Susan character a lot because she's written kind of screamy and useless. But when they put that really weird, creepy twist to her, she did an excellent job with what she was given. I agree completely. She seemed creepier when they changed her clothes, you know, when they like put her to rest in the other room. The change of clothes made it creepier than it was. Yeah, and I just thinking back to those opening scenes and particularly the characters. One thing I find very interesting here, and it almost harks back to a, to the very first episode, Barbara is actually the first one to speak in this story. I noticed that, she, thanks to you bringing it up last time. In the same way that she was the first one to speak in the very first serial. And she's the first one just up and about. I find it interesting how she's frequently the one driving the plot in these early serials. She's kind of our protagonist, really. Which is interesting because most of the critical thought on these early stories has Ian being labelled as the, the hero and the eyes of the audience. But again, I think if we think back to who's making this show and who's running it, we have Verity Lambert, who is obviously a woman, running the show. And we have Barbara, who is driving a lot of the plot. And I don't think that's a coincidence. It's something that's very progressive for the early 60s and it works really well yeah I, i'm glad you brought that up i noticed that as well i even have in my notes i specifically just wrote a short line and said barbara taking the lead here and i think the dynamic of the cast of characters provides that opportunity for the barbara character because as we've seen the previous two serials the doctor and ian are you know butting heads constantly and which then therefore as that's occurring that just uh, that uh, antagonism between the two of them, it provides an opportunity for Susan to be the rational one or the one to like steer the, cr the team towards some sort of solution. Julie, I know you always have some strong feelings on this topic, so I would be very curious to hear what you have to say. I actually loved Barbara and this short little run. She got to have more of the interaction with the doctor and just kind of was standing up to him more and things like that. So it was interesting with all of their character traits changing so quickly, which for better or for worse, I don't know how I feel about how drastic that was. It did leave Barbara to be able to have more of an input and things like that. So Susan, and while Susan, yes, being creepy was fantastic, in the first 
episode of this, she had three pretty dramatic moments. <laughs> Is that what we're calling them no. now? Dramatic <laughs> moments. There was one uh, when the doors were opening and I had kind of looked away from the screen for a second and I could have sworn she was scared by the coat rack. My notes on that scene simply read, doors open, Susan hysterical, no <laughs> surprise. I mean, I also had just like that first faint that she had. So while not hysterical, just very dramatic, which is why I'm leaning towards dramatic as opposed to hysterical. I mean, we use the word hysterical. It's It really is such a shame that based on these three stories that our perception of Susan is just so atrocious. I think it really goes back to what I mentioned last time around about Family Guy and Meg and how they just don't know how to write for a teenage girl. So with Meg, they just make her awful. Well, here they just make Susan freak out at the slightest little thing because, you know, she's a teenage girl, which is not how a teenage girl would behave, but they just don't know what to do with the character. The writers were looking for a perspective of like, what do these teenage girls do? Oh, they scream over the Beatles. They're just screaming all the time. All right, but yeah, put that into the character. Scream, scream, scream. So it didn't happen until the next story was being broadcast, but I believe that the first actual live performance of the Beatles, one of the anecdotes, it, first live performances of the Beatles in the US, one of the anecdotes is that the audience, predominantly made up of, of teenage women, the, the screaming was so loud no one could actually hear the performance. Oh yeah, I'm, I, I am familiar with that recording, and <laughs> it's true, and I get it. <laughs> I mean, if that's their reference point, maybe, but um, I think I'd be screaming at the Beatles too. And I say that as a 31-year-old man. Lingering on Susan, I mean, it, it, it seems very obvious that she's the most severely impacted by whatever's going on. Her behavior is the strangest through this. And I actually think it's very, very well directed for the most part. So the, the infamous scissors scene. You mean where she attempts to scissor Barbara? I believe she attempts to scissor Ian. Earlier, she oh. attempts to scissor them both. Oh my gosh, Susan just loves scissoring. <laughs> I have to say that th th those scissors in particular were ridiculously intimidating. I mean, those those were like, you know, slasher movie scissors right there. That was actually one of my yeah. favorite parts of this episode. Susan actually being scary. She was very creepy. I agree with all that. Give her some scissors and that's what she does. You know, <laughs> someone tries to touch her in a Dalek forest, they're going to get stabbed. There you go. <laughs> Susan and a pair of scissors versus the Daleks. I would like to see who wins that battle. <laughs> so I agree with all that. However, to kind of touch point on what uh, Anthony said, I actually disagree on who was affected most because I actually think it was Ian. Ian throughout this entire thing was completely out of character and it threw me. I had to watch it again because I was just like, I, I don't know what is happening because he was very much spaced out just like, not with it at all, completely out of character. And while I understand that what has happened with the ship has affected that, also at the same time, I'm like, does it affect that much of the core of who you are? Because it seemed to be really extreme for him. It's definitely an interesting one, because where we've seen the Doctor and Ian in previous stories very much compete for that role of lead protagonist here at Ian is definitely sidelined I feel and yeah I think a part of that is his aloofness in this yeah Ian's just complete all messed up I think maybe it was done in a manner so that we can have that central conflict of the doctor and Barbara in the second episode of the serial 
something to sideline him because you could see in previous episodes that based on what the how the doctor was speaking to Barbara that Ian would probably puff his chest out and try to defend her or something. So I think that was maybe part of the reason why they wrote Ian to be off the La La Land. Yeah, and and speaking of Barbara, I mean, even in in the first episode, The Edge of Destruction, the way she stands up to the Doctor and talks about everything they've done to help him and, you know, they got him out of the cave and they helped him get the fluid link back, etc., etc., and then says, you should be thanking us. I mean, she's really very impressive. That was a great moment. I was so proud of her. Yeah, I'm really not sure I would have the chutzpah to stand up to the doctor in that way. Well, also, I think about it from their point of view. It's like this crazy old man <laughs> who, when you first met him, was being belligerent towards you, even though you were just trying to help out his granddaughter. And then he throws you into this situation where you don't know where you are. And he just basically refuses to just drop you back off where you were. It's, they're basically, in kind of way, kidnapped. And what, what I loved in this first episode, I don't know if anyone else picked up on it, Susan actually apologizes to Barbara for the behavior of the Doctor. And Barbara tell, tells her it, it's not her place to apologize for him, which is true. And then can we talk about how creepy the Doctor was when everyone was asleep? You mean the, by, by drugging all of them? <laughs> I swear, I think I could see him do like the little, like, scooby-doo like tiptoe sneak after like he's like walking back to the control panel after everyone was knocked out it was so ridiculous i was just like okay doctor being a creeper great check mark there are a number of scenes prior to that where we see susan just kind of lurking in the background and tiptoeing through it either to go and rescue the scissors or rescue the scissors (laughs) (laughs) the scissors are in danger Maybe I phrased that wrong, but to to retrieve the scissors which had previously been confiscated from her, I should say. The way that was directed, I thought, was just superb. You know, she's just creeping there in the background, and it's very obvious to the viewer, but everyone else is completely oblivious to her. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was the uh, Where's Waldo of the uh, episode. (laughs) There she is. She's over there now. And I love, like, just the look when she has, like, that maniacal look. It's just fun to see the character of Susan, like, you know, look like she's ready to stab somebody. I mean, she stabbed that bed couch thing pretty well. Speaking of the couch, could we discuss uh, what is everyone's thoughts about the interior design of the TARDIS? I mean, this is the first episode where you are spent a lot of time looking around. I gotta, I gotta like the design, and I have, I have to find it interesting. The, I guess, would you call it a piece of art, or would you call it a clock? The, the, the chapel, the little, the figurine chapel? Oh, I think that's a beautiful clock. I would I would love that in my living room. I'm trying to find out where to get one. I love the design of the first Doctor's TARDIS. Well, it's like I seem to remember reading a quote. Uh, it was Sandifer. Um, she said that the TARDIS interior was a stark white of iconic 60s futurism that would age gracefully into retro futurism. That's right on point. I particularly enjoyed the fact that the food dispenser had buttons for water and milk. But nothing but else. But nothing else. Everything else you have to know a code for to put in very precisely. If you want water or milk, you're good to go. And I'm, su- I'm assuming that's cow's milk. I and mean, this is the doctor we're speaking we, of. We don't so. know. Just milk. Yeah. Just milk. It's also not very like user-friendly because it's like, what do the beeps mean? Did I get water? Did I not get water? I don't. 
know. The user interface is rather awful. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> does does the flashing light just mean that I'm pressing down on the button? Is it know. held down? What is going? I like when uh they got the the bandage that changed colors. Actually, pretty interesting because you know we have a lot of things nowadays that change colors based on certain things. Usually, it's more of like a cleaning thing. But I was just like, oh, they thought of the bandage that changed color as things heal. Oh yeah, the bandage that had the ointment already. Mm -hmm. We ended up change colors whenever the ointment was absorbed. That was very cool. Yeah, I, I see what you mean, Julie, because that's that kind of thing is very prevalent in 2018. Certainly, uh, with my razor, as I shave, the the blue strip disappears as the razor gets duller. But in 1964, that was probably quite revolutionary. So I I know Julie touched on it, but we we get to that cliffhanger when the doctor thinks everyone else is unconscious and suddenly we see some hands on his throat now is that before or after uh they realize that somebody salvador dollied all their clocks and watches i'm that's, trying to remember that's after ah uh, okay because they i thought all... that was a, i thought it was a nice creepy touch that that just uh, all of a sudden everyone is noticing that it's got to be very disconcerting when you're in a time machine and notice that like all manners of measuring time have just suddenly morphed yeah, they all kind of freak out at the clock melting, which, you know, probably not unfair. No, not at all. I mean, it's, like I said, I thought it was a very nice touch for the episode to, you know, continue the suspense and the anxiety that builds throughout the entire serial. And that's definitely something that's touched on in the next episode, because there, there's that comment that I think it's Barbara that makes about time being given back to us because it's running out. So something funky is going on with time, and that seems to be the first indication of of that. It really feels like the melting clock is the first uh, element that leads Barbara in that direction. Is that so, is that before or after the Doctor threatens to go all President Roslin and throw them out the uh, TARDIS airlock? That's before that. The Doctor's throw them out moment is relatively early on in in episode two the the brink of disaster and the the melting clock is towards the end of uh, the first episode the edge of destruction and then we and then we move into the brink of disaster episode two so is is this serial only two episodes because they started running out of names because you can extend this to precipice of annihilation <laughs> point of disintegration <laughs> you know, if they need to pad this, I'm I'm happy to help. Don, when uh, when we invite invent time machines, we shall send you back so we can pad this story out even longer. I think really it was that they couldn't figure out how many times they could hide the scissors from Susan. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, uh, one of the characters makes the comment, "We're on the brink of destruction," which you know we have the edge of destruction and and the brink of disaster and. Suddenly we have a character meshing the names of both episodes. So not quite an episode name drop, but close enough. Once again, after Ian trying to strangle the Doctor, it's Barbara being rational and trying to talk sense into Susan and trying to get Susan to convince the Doctor of her position. So Is that the point where Barbara drops this line because Susan is starting to freak out and she says, don't Susan, please don't. Which to me, just like Barbara is just like us. He's like, just no, just stop it. Okay. Damn it, Susan, I'm done with your shit. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, I have to say that regardless of Susan in this episode, she has what I believe to be one of the best 
dramatic musical cue entrances I've ever seen. I don't know if you if we can pipe that in, but just like the crashing sound of the like I believe it's just horns come in as she like makes a dramatic entrance is just fantastic. Again, the music of both of these episodes was so spot on. I was so excited. My second comment of this whole thing was I love the music. It was great. Okay, so earlier I was wrong. Tristan Carey was not actually involved in this one, from what I can tell. The special sounds were by Brian Hodgson, and Jack Brummett was the sound supervisor, so they were really driving the spectacular soundtrack that we get here. So after kind of that interaction with Barbara and Ian, and we move forward a little bit, one thing that I noticed that as off as Ian seemed in this in these two episodes, he still sees through the doctor's manipulation. He always sees through it. He figures out, it's like, the doctor was like, oh yeah, I totally drugged all you guys. And he was like, I knew it. Well, it's not like this version of the doctor is terribly <laughs> subtle. Almost like he's not good with people. <laughs> he's really not. <laughs> I'm just happy to see someone get, call him out on it. Because like in the newer series, like the doctor gets a lot of leeway when it comes to manipulation. So it's just refreshing to see someone just come right out and say, hey, what are you doing? Talking of the Doctor, what I find really interesting about this episode is how he becomes more and more concerned over time about what's going on. By the time we get to the looking at the fault locator again, and it turns out that absolutely everything is wrong. It's It, it really gets the worst case scenario. And suddenly he goes from assuming that something is that Ian and Barbara have done something to realizing that something else is very, very wrong. And from that point, his concern really hits a new level. Can I point out the lovely job of the uh, illustrations that were put up on the view screen? The moon reminded me of the MST3K logo. I could see that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Did, uh, did MST3K ever lampoon this story? Because I feel like that's something they may have missed. To the best of my knowledge, I... they've never done any Doctor Who. The MST3K has not done Doctor Who, but I'm pretty sure that Rift Tracks have actually done the Doctor Who Dalek Peter Cushing movie. I think Rift Tracks actually did the Five Doctors at one point as well. But this, I feel like this is prime material for them. They they could even insert their own logo on on the TARDIS scanner. <laughs> so we have Barbara being an absolute genius in this. We really do. Beautiful. I mean, she's the one who figures it all out. She's the first one to realize that everything that's happening are clues to what's wrong. She's the one who's trying to talk sense into Susan. She's she's the key to everything. And she's so clear about it. She has no hesitation. She's just like this and this and this. And I'm just like, it's so beautiful laid out. Oh, my God. After Barbara made her point about having how her and Ian saved the Doctor and Susan in the first two serials, we have her saving the day again. Could this show even exist without Barbara? No. I think not not with this not with this doctor. That's fair. If she hadn't been there, it probably wouldn't have continued. So no 55 years. I'm actually curious when you say not with this doctor, are we talking about not with the first doctor or not with the first doctor in this particular part of his tenure? I think in this particular part of the tenure, like I said, I'm trying to look at these episodes. I mean, it's it's fun for me to look at it from a perspective of seeing a lot of other Doctor Who episodes, but I'm trying to look at it from the point of view of a person watching this within the time period of 1963, trying to or 1964, and trying to understand like, okay, what is this show? What is it trying to say? 
who are these characters without any of the baggage that I could bring to it. That's what I'm trying to do. So I think, you know, in 1964, and I think this was mentioned, someone mentioned this previously, that the Doctor right now is basically um, the antagonist of the show, the, the overarching antagonist. And granted, we have, you know, antagonists, you know, per serial, but for the overarching season so far, I think the audience is going to empathize with Barbara and Ian, and then the kids watching the show are going to empathize with Susan. I don't think you're meant to empathize with the doctor, this doctor right now, and how the show is written. So what's happening is you're looking at this, and if you're looking at it from the perspective of Barbara and Ian, your thought is, these people just want to get home. (laughs) Why is this old man not letting these people go home? It's either because he refuses to or he's incapable to. That's definitely interesting because, I mean, while he's not necessarily the villain, he's certainly the one who gets them into all of these difficult scenarios in these first three serials. The starting companions of the show were crucial for the show to last where it did, because without Barbara and Ian, I don't think an audience from the time period would have been pulled into the Doctor as he is now. The way it's structured right now, it's really more Barbara's story than anyone else's. Despite Doctor Who being the name of the show, the Doctor isn't our protagonist. And looking at it from, you know, the span of all those years, he's not the first Doctor. He's just the Doctor at this point. There's no hints that he can regenerate or a new one will come later. You know, he just is who he is. What's interesting there is we've had this very difficult character through the first three serials, basically. And then at the very end here, of this, this the third serial, he starts to soften. There's a great comment that Rob Shearman makes, and it's actually echoed by a couple of the other critics, where they talk about how Ian, Barbara, and Susan basically snap back into their previous personae at the end of the story, but the Doctor doesn't. So the Doctor's the one who's been through the journey here. While he's been somewhat cruel and callous in the first couple of stories by the time we come around to him at the end and he's having that conversation with barbara and he says you know oh you were absolutely right and we all owe you our lives and then he almost breaks the fourth wall and says i really believe that i have underestimated that young lady in the past it's really a sign of of him softening to both ian and barbara i think i totally get how barbara i wouldn't say she like reverted back to how she was before but it was basically after that whole ordeal her figuring it out and she just having those moments she was just like you know what that was overwhelming i'm done we got through it and i'm just she was in a crash she was in an adrenaline crash so it was like i totally get where she was kind of coming from from there and the fact that you know the doctor kind of came in and was like okay we're gonna have this conversation i was like all right i can finally start being on board with this doctor because the first two serials didn't really draw me in yet. So if he hadn't have had that conversation, I would probably still be, I don't know about this doctor, man. Yeah, and I think his the, that final kind of indication of a soft reboot of his character comes towards the very end where him and Barbara sit down and have that heart-to-heart and he tells her that she's very valuable and as they go to rejoin the others, he offers her his arm to walk her out and that's just... To me, that seems like something he just wouldn't have done at any point in the first two stories. You know, he really didn't value her. He didn't value Ian. He would never have offered any kind of support, emotional or physical. 
regardless of whether or not it was needed up until this point, he's been through a journey here. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful thing about this episode, looking back at it now, is how important it is for the character progression. The first two serials, uh, the dynamic amongst the crew of the TARDIS, so to speak, was not great. I mean, there were moments where they would come together as a team or help each other out and the Daleks, but then there were still moments of bickering between them and getting kind of vicious. And this kind of just all culminates towards this where they're all stuck together in a tight situation, can't get out, things are building, and it causes everything to just come out into an explosion. And then now they're maybe seeing each other in a whole different light. Barbara and Ian can see the Doctor is having a sensitive side and you know realizing that he can be wrong. And then the Doctor respecting them as being something more than just annoyances to him. <laughs> One thing I noticed, and I'm curious, particularly on Julie's thoughts, but overall everyone's, I know in the previous story, when the Doctor and Ian fished the Dalek mutant out of the Dalek casing, he sent Barbara and Susan out into the corridor so they didn't have to see it. Another thing I found quite striking here was when he thought that they were all about to die, he sends Susan and Barbara to stand by the TARDIS doors so that they would be the first ones to go and effectively not know anything about it. I have mixed opinions about it. This one is less about, oh, let's just like keep the women from like, you know, seeing this ridiculous thing that they would ha then have to remember for the rest of their lives versus let's make this as painless as possible and as quick as possible. I, I don't have as strong of an opinion uh, on this one as I do on the other one. I think if I were Ian, I would be like, well, why are you telling me then? Can I go and stand at the door with them? <laughs> he doesn't like Ian as Very... much. He wants Ian to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the other podcasts I listen to, um, Flight Through Entirety, my friend Brendan is one of the people on that, and they have a theory that the Doctor's actually in love with Barbara. I'd be very interested to see if we continue to test that and see how we feel like that pans out over the next 10 or so serials. Maybe he just appreciates ah. really good backcombing. <laughs> I think it's her I, uh, leather sex pants. I've always been a proponent of the Doctor having as little to do with romance as possible. Oh, man. I am living for the day that we just get asexual Doctor who just never falls in love with anybody because I really just want, I just want space adventures. You're going to um, love the Aztecs. I was going to say, well, aside from the Aztecs, you're just going to love the classic series in general. Yeah, because although to be fair, like the only exception that I really, really have is River Song. But that's just because River is so great that River can do no wrong. Oh, we'll come back to that in about four years time. <laughs> <laughs> And you can fight me on that. Again, we'll come back to that in about four <laughs> years. If that's where we're heading, I don't, I don't like that. I don't think it's ever actually seriously mentioned, but it's just a little theory on how he at times seems to have a bit more affection for her than anyone else traveling with him, but it's nothing overt or romantic. I can be on board with that. So another thing I thought was interesting was, you know, we... we we talked earlier in one of the earlier episodes about Sidney Newman's intent that there was an educational aspect of the story. And here we have the Doctor's Carl Sagan moment. <laughs> yes. I don't know if anyone else picked up on it, but I felt like there was some rather Shatner-esque inflections in there. <laughs> 
two or three years before he would have likely even known who William Shatner was. You're not wrong. I got I got the Sagan. I got the Sagan. I just uh, don't. I, I didn't necessarily get the Shatner, but I definitely got the Sagan. So, did anyone else notice the fast return switch was written a label in Sharpie? I just love that. In in my head canon, that's just something the doctor does, so he knows what the various buttons and switches do. It really just seems like this is a story of an old man who forgot to leave, you know, had left his parking brake on or something, <laughs> basically, and endangered the everyone in his car. You know, one thing I find interesting, or not so much interesting, but rather pertinent about that, is if you think to um, an adventure in space and time, and there's that great scene where William Hartnell says, you know, I can't do that, that's not the right button for that. That story, from what I've heard, is not apocryphal. Billy Hartnell genuinely was quite adamant that certain buttons on the TARDIS console did certain things, and so if a director told him to press that button, he would say, no, no, I can't do that, that's the door. So to have one marked out as fast return, so he knows exactly which one it is, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I love that. All the buttons should have a meaning. I agree with him. As do I. He was very, very keen on that. And, and again, we're some way away from it, because I've heard that John Pertwee was exactly the same. So that's a nice little bit of continuity. I mean, you have to appreciate that. I mean, that as an audience member, you're required to suspend your disbelief. And it's a lot easier to do that when the show in and of itself has an internal logic. They're constantly flipping things around. Then it's just how can you be willing to take those flights of fancy? Another thing I was happy to see was them talking about the wardrobe. Like, oh, hey, we can actually get you new clothes. Barbara's just sitting there thinking, but I really liked my thal sex pants. <laughs> I know this is the very end of the episode, but we're about to get into one of my favorite phases of the first Doctor with Ian is the period of putting Ian in ridiculous outfits, period. It's going to get really, really good. That sounds amazing. Almost so that I, I had a theory in which I believe either someone on the crew or the producers or internally into the story itself the doctor himself was so wanted to make a mockery of ian that they intentionally put him in the most ridiculous costumes possible speaking of mocking ian when, when you talk an awful lot about how things are shot and the look of something there was a scene near the very end just before they go outside and ian laughs about something and it was, to me, it totally brought me out of the story because he was laughing like a character would at the end of a bad sitcom. It was a complete full house moment. I was waiting for, you know, the screen to freeze with him smiling and then the credit music to roll. It was just so weird. I think that was intentional to try to, you know, you know, give the audience a sense of like, you know, the bad arguments that we had amongst the four of us beforehand are now clear and now we're all good and happy i think it you know, may have been a bit heavy-handed but i think that was the intention yeah i definitely thought this sounds and and looks very sitcom-esque and i expected the same thing don and then for an inversion you could have susan stab him with her scissors right after that doctor who as directed by tim Burton. i'd watch it is the music by Danny Elfman? Of course. Just as long as Johnny Depp is not in it, please. He is, but Susan stabs him with scissors <laughs> in the first 10 seconds. Uh, then I will definitely buy a ticket for that. 
Ah, so that almost leads us into the next story, which we will be discussing next time around. This really did fulfill the original end of the 13-episode run, and because of the impact that the Daleks had, they decided to renew it for the rest of what we now know as Season 1. But I wanted to explore with you guys whether, if this had ended here, would anyone really remember this show? Or would it just be a curious thing that ran for 13 weeks in 1963 and we all forgot about? Pop culture now is always looking backwards and celebrating things of the past. I think the question is, you know, how, how much so like would it be like have a small cult following of you know just i i think that's possible would it be up to a level of i was saying about star trek but then star trek also expanded on for many 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 years and is still going on so that's not a fair comparison the closest thing we have might be the the quatermass serials in the 50s which the three serials combined came to 18 episodes rather than 13 be just as well known as Quatermasses in, in the United States, which is minuscule. If it hadn't been a big hit because of the Daleks and the impact they had, all of these episodes would have been wiped. The oh, only yeah, thing you yeah. would have would be people's memories of it. You wouldn't even have the books that came out, the adaptations. It would be, hey, I saw this, you know, really cool show, but it's all gone now. The very first serial, An Unearthly Child, had its original U.S. broadcast in 1985. So. The Tom Baker serials had already been on there, but it wasn't until 1985 that um, An Unearthly Child was broadcast in the USA. Well, Anthony, let's ask you, do you think Doctor Who would be remembered by anyone if it ended there, oh, particularly in England? Because we've already answered that it would not be remembered here. Aside from some archived TV aficionados like myself, probably not. I mean, when you think back as to what people think of as iconic, they tend to think of the fourth Doctor. They do think of the Daleks. The renewal of this show really was a function of the introduction of the Daleks. So I'm just trying to think how it would have been remembered if we didn't have them. I think it's very unlikely that anyone would remember this if, if that had been the case. You can't just have just the Daleks by themselves to carry a show. There has to be something more to it. So... What does everyone else believe was the second reason? I mean, I personally think that it's Barbara and Ian. They're very good companions and that they really pulled people, the audience, into it and made it feel something they can empathize with. Yes and no, because I think as an executive, I would be looking at it. And as an executive, I would have assumed that it was the Daleks in and of themselves. And that's what would have let them actually get those renewed. So I think there's a difference between an audience perspective and an executive perspective. Yeah, and what's what's interesting on that, Julie, is Tatwood and Lawrence Miles in their really excellent About Time series talk about that first Dalek serial and, and how the BBC controller of programs at the time, a chap called Hugh Weldon, who had a lot of sway over what would be cancelled and what would be continued, came in after a weekend and announced to everyone that his two kids had spent an entire weekend running around with a waste paper basket on their head, <laughs> pretending to exterminate people. So, so much like Riley, his children of... are Dalek sympathizers. Exactly. When you have BBC execs coming in and going, oh my gosh, my kids did the most amazing thing influenced by this show. I mean, I really think that's a huge factor in the fact it didn't get cancelled. While the Daleks are great by themselves, it was also a strong indication that Verity and her team were making the right decisions as far as 
what Doctor Who should be. To me, the thinking is, okay, they did these Daleks, and we didn't know what they were, and I know there were certain people within the BBC that were vehemently opposed to that script. But once it was successful, it sort of gave them carte blanche to do what they wanted to do. Yeah, and I mean, that was Sidney Newman. I, I think we covered this last time, but Sidney Newman came in and said, what the hell are you doing? And after the wild success of that serial, he said, okay, Verity, I trust you. you you've got this. Just run with what you want. I, I think it really was the Daleks that were key to the survival of the story. Now, while they were, there was no intention at this point to bring them back, that was the sign of, yes, we can do some amazing things with this and we can keep it going and, and give both the BBC and the audiences what they want. And Susan can continue listening to Slayer. <laughs> with her scissors. And having very dramatic moments. <laughs> There's some critical thought around the nature of the TARDIS that comes out of this story. The implication being that the TARDIS is psychic, and that's why everyone was acting so odd. Psychic and sentient. Yeah. Right, so in the previous two stories we've had where the, the TARDIS is very much just a machine that gets them from point A to point B, and they have rooms and food available. Whereas here, it goes from just being something that has that purely functional basis to something that's more than that. And, and it becomes the effectively the, the fifth character of this story. And one thing that a couple of people have picked up upon, and, and I actually found myself getting very drawn into, is David Whittaker, who was the writer of this serial and, and the script editor of the show at this time, was very much into all sorts of esoteric traditions, things like alchemy and hermeticism. He's really turning the TARDIS here from a, a purely functional machine into something magical and mystical in its own right. But we'll come back to that about Whitaker <laughs> later on. I have more to say there. So this week, we'll be voting this in how many pairs of scissors out of ten? <laughs> Let's start with Julie this time. Julie. So this is tough because I'm not going to lie. When I first watched it, I wasn't too happy with it. But our conversation, I think, helped a lot. And it kind of depends on where I put my focus. So I'm going to give it six out of ten scissors. Barbara brought it up a lot for me, but I just had some issues with how drastic the changes were with some of the characters. Ian just seemed totally out of place. Just wasn't as strong. I thought it was first two. Don? I originally found this serial to be a little bit off-putting, and I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it. But the more that I, I thought about it and tried to interpret what exactly was going on, what clues had been set up in the beginning of the original you know, first episode, and then were sort of laid out later on, the more I thought about it, the more I, I enjoyed it as a piece of fiction. So I'm going to give it seven pairs of scissors. Riley? Well, um, I really enjoyed the first episode of the serial. It's like I said before, it builds up a lot of paranoia, suspense, anxiety. It had, And we discussed how it has some horror movie elements. And I really enjoy horror movies. I did appreciate in the second episode where we have those uh, character progression, uh, character growth. And that was enjoyable too, and very important for the continuation and uh, of, you know for these characters going forward. I, like I said before, don't really care much for the resolution as much. I was hoping maybe them banding together against some sort of unseen force 
or something like that would have been a, more to my preference. So I will give it six stabbing scissors. Okay, and then from my perspective, I I have to agree with Julie. For for me, this is a a six pairs of scissors out of ten. It's it's pretty decent Doctor Who. It it starts getting us in the right direction with the character of the Doctor, particularly by the end. But it really is nothing special for me. Nothing spectacular. There's nothing mind blowing here. It's just very run of the mill, and I think that's kind of what you expect for the bottle episode with the limited cast and and attempting to save money so solid but not spectacular so with that join us next time when we will be discussing marco polo our first missing serial that's going to be an interesting experience hopefully it will be enjoyable at least somewhat for everyone and uh, we look forward to discussing that so Thank you for joining us this evening, and uh, we hope you tune back next time. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippak, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Susan Loves Scissoring, was recorded on Wednesday the 5th of December 2018. And always remember, the key to winning friends and influencing people is to threaten to put them off the ship, regardless of where you are, including deep space.